Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Reporting straight from the labs at UCLA, here's your host, Dr. Santos. I have to say, I'm pretty impressed by your intro today, Santos. It was quite an improvement over your usual ones. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I like to have fun with it sometimes. Well, I I mean, you picked the perfect time because uh, this week we are doing one of our bi-monthly, bi-weekly. I never know which direction those dates go, but our twice-a-month journal clubs. Yay! Woo! Appropriately enough, this one is a whole bunch of stories I rounded up this week that deal with self-improvement. You know, usually we talk about maybe psychologically or, or getting some exercise, but let's talk about some ways to do it chemically. Or genetically. Or genetically. Or, well, we'll save the best for last. But let's start with something. You know, we hear so much bad news or conspiracy theories about autism and all the things that are making people autistic. I think maybe it might be nice to get some good news about autism for a change. You know, we've we've actually been doing really well with not only learning what the autism spectrum looks like, but trying to figure out a few causes here and there, uh, including genetic causes. A lot of what we're trying to do when helping a person with autism, or I should say an autistic person, kind of integrate into the rest of society is to help either chemically, genetically, or behaviorally moderate their symptoms. Well, the interesting thing, we now have a drug that may, and I emphasize may because it's a very small pilot study. So let's everybody just pump the brakes a little bit right here. A 100-year-old vintage drug produces some temporary improvement in learning skills in autistic children. It is by no means a cure for autism, and I'm sure that term will be floated at some point. It is barely even a sustainable improvement for autism. It is, however, an interesting view into what may drive some of the disabilities we often see on children with spectrum disorders. The reason we're kind of, we sound like we're walking on eggshells a little bit, but the understanding that Dr. Josh and I have is that 
you know, autism really shouldn't be treated like a disease, you know, the way that some other diseases are. It's really just a different way to see the world. Sometimes that different way to see the world runs into difficulty for some of our friends who are, you know, on the autistic spectrum, like they can't understand or communicate well. That's when we run into those words like disability. So let's let's start by saying what the drug actually is. It's suramin, which originally was developed way back in the early 1900s, Teddy Roosevelt era, to treat yep. sleeping sickness or trypanosomiasis, which will be in an upcoming around the world in 80 plagues because sleeping sickness is fun to say. <laughs> it is. And uh, <laughs> people who don't understand that pun will understand it in a couple of episodes. I'll tell you that. <laughs> So, yeah, Suramin is one of the few treatments that are available for sleeping sickness. It's a bit toxic. It's not the greatest thing in the world. And trypanosoma, we actually have very few treatments at all for African sleeping sickness. It's still used a hundred plus year later for for trypanosomiasis because it's all we have. Now... When we were reading this study, which was published in the Annals of Clinical and Translational Neurology, it didn't say what first inspired the researcher, Professor Robert Navio, to try testing Suramin on autistic children. It's not really clear where he came across. However, he did what, although a small study, would be otherwise flawless methodology in terms of setting up a double-blind, random selection with placebos involved. So, Santosh, I believe you are a researcher. What are your comments on his methods? His methods were really clean, and I think this was a beautiful, small study. He chose children who were healthy, who had the symptoms of autism, and, you know, he started out with a fairly large pool of 20 males so he even controlled for gender and then he he took that down to five males who received suramin and five who received placebo they were screened in all sorts of ways to make sure they were healthy enough and hale enough to receive the suramin treatment he reviewed the dosages several times to make sure he was in the therapeutic window And uh, I think he had a fairly good rationale as well. He was looking at a uh, hypothesis called a cell danger hypothesis, which, without getting too much into the nitty-gritty, talks about how a cell metabolizes energy and how that pathway of metabolism may relate to some of the symptoms in autism spectrum. And uh, suramin, which has quite a few actions, does act in some ways on these metabolic pathways. He chose a good cohort, and he made the cohort safe and small enough to do this pilot study. And then he looked at his endpoints, which were very kind of narrow and focused. He wasn't trying to prove that just like Dr. Josh said, that this would do like a massive cure of all autistic behaviors. He was looking very, very purely at 
a few diagnostic outcomes. And when you start seeing all the BuzzFeed drama where it says, you know, 14-year-old boy who hadn't spoken in 12 years said his first words ever and making more eye contact with the doctors and the nurses and hugging the parents, all of that is wonderful and fantastic. And yes, it may be indications of, you know, ongoing improvements. However, it also says in the same paper, over two to three weeks, the participants largely returned to their previous behaviors. So, right. once again, not a and, cure, uh, but a method to help us understand right. how it works. Yeah, and the reason for a lot of this was because, um, you know, suramin can have side effects if it's given for too long. It's given for a, a finite amount of time to treat sleeping sickness. So the results were that patients were able to maintain a, a steady blood level of suramin. The test that he administered, the cognitive test, was called the ADOS-2 or ADOS-2. And uh, he did see improvement, a significant improvement in those scores in the, the group of children who received suramin versus the placebo group. By measuring via ADOS-2 and one-word picture vocabulary, which is it's flashcards. And after the sermon treatment, which was a one-time IV infusion, rates of language, social, behavioral, and developmental improvements gradually increased for three weeks and then decreased back towards baseline over the next three weeks. Yeah. A little over a month and a half, you would begin right. to see improvement exactly. in all the behaviors, uh, which very often... Along with this, he did check body chemistry, so like the white blood cells, the platelets, making sure the urinary system was okay, and the hematopoietic system. These are two systems that can be affected by cerumen. The kids were safe the whole way through. The only thing that happened to the kids who were receiving cerumen, which was significantly different from the kids who were receiving the placebo, was they got a little asymptomatic rash. It looks like for this limited period, the suramin levels were steady, the children were safe, and they had improvement in the ADOS-2, but not in the flashcard test, uh, which was the other test that we mentioned. I, I think the most important thing to get out of this is that it, when we look at autism symptoms, we can actually examine a true neurological cellular aberration or a function uh, rather than thinking about this medication as a treatment we can actually think about this as kind of like a little backwards engineering into the brains of you know into that black box of how autism produces its symptoms hmm. Yep, I think this is a beautiful start. As we are fully into summer, Santosh, the trees are singing, the birds are blooming, the people yeah. are growing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, the best part of summer is the pollen, right? <laughs> Stop blessing yourself. <laughs> so, of course, the pollen, best part of summer for, oh, at least a significant portion of the country, I would guess. You know, some of us absolutely love summer, and then for those of us who are allergic, which does include me to some degree, although I'm more of an indoor allergy kind of guy, pollen is, uh, it's a bitch. 
I'll say it. I said it. Are we being controversial whoa, up whoa, in here? Whoa. Yeah. Fuck. Po- <laughs> yeah, I'll say it. <laughs> Scientists at the University of Queensland in Australia may have found a way to turn off immune responses from certain severe allergies, such as those you see in asthma. So not just pollen, but allergies that we more commonly think of as Hollywood ones, like peanuts and shellfish. So if this is actually possible, that would be great because a whole bunch of people wouldn't have to be scared of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches anymore. Or the infamous peanut butter and shrimp, which uh, I believe that was Elvis's second favorite after after the banana. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was peanut butter, banana, and then peanut butter and shrimp. <laughs> and then then everyone who was eating with him would go throw up, and that was a party with Elvis. And this is... (laughs) How is this accomplished? By uh, causing amnesia in your body cells. Ooh. Yeah. (laughs) That's true. So we have uh, several kind of arms of our immune system, and one very specific arm is our... uh, our memory T-cells. And we love these T-cells because these are the guys that can literally remember when they've seen a bad guy before so that when you encounter it a second time, they ramp up your response and beat it down right away before you... They the Mr. T-cells are some bad they, mamajamas. They and they're trying to tell you to stay in school. <laughs> but... Sometimes we don't want them to go to school. We would rather that they forget some stuff because there are antigens in our everyday lives which are allergens. These are particles that produce a different type of inflammation and they're particles that aren't necessarily harmful for us just by themselves, but our bodies have, our immune systems, I should say, have learned using their memory, their T-cell memory, that these are bad guys. So they are, our immune system has learned to react strongly against these type of particles. So, so for some people it's dust mites, and for some people it's pollen. And ultimately, if you want to stop being allergic, you've got to fool or erase that memory. Now, normally, this is a long, long process that takes place in hospitals known as desensitization. And it's really only done in pretty severe or emergency cases where you have to give something that a person's otherwise allergic to. And it doesn't necessarily last forever. In my case, which is the most famous example, is if I have a penicillin allergic patient, but I need to give a penicillin to them, I'll call in allergy. They'll do a desensitization by slowly introducing larger and larger doses of penicillin yeah, under the skin, <laughs> Josh, they'll do it intradermally. They'll make a little bubble underneath the skin um, until they're desensitized. Then I can administer my penicillin. But then after that, there's no you know, guarantee that they're not going to be allergic to penicillin anymore. They might become allergic you know, five weeks later. Right. So um, that takes a long time to do. So in their research in Queensland... The scientists took some stem cells from the blood, or blood stem cells, and they inserted a gene that would help regulate allergies. 
And they found that in these T cells, which normally are responsible for remembering the allergen, who have that conditioned fear response, they right. could then delete the memory of the allergen, where it'd be like, oh, your father was killed by a clown? Turns out you don't even know what clowns are. And poof, <laughs> the memory is gone. Uh, that might have been a personal note from Dr. Josh, but I won't comment. What? No, 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 it's fine. No. <laughs> All the circuses are closed now. I'm safe. <laughs> they are. So... They are. So <laughs> it, um, we should start off, Josh, by saying that this was done in mice because we did uh, in this study do a whole bunch of like little mini mouse bone marrow transplants. Uh, but what is science <laughs> but a study of mice and men? Uh, yeah, that's true. So in this case, we did not do the men part. We just did the mice. Because in order to do this, you had to take away a, uh, a mouse's original pool of stem cells, which are the ones that produce the immune cells in the first place, and that's in the bone marrow. So the way that you do that is actually take out their bone marrow, and you take, you take the, the cell pool that you want to, you genetically modify it in a Petri dish. And then while you're doing that, you give your poor little mouse doses of irradiation so that you obliterate all of the cells in their bone marrow, and then you reseed them back with their genetically modified cells. So this is how you get rid of their old immune memory. You literally burn it out of them. And this is not something that we can do to, you know, people walking around. So I, I think it was really, it was a really cool uh, mouse study. Um, and we should also note that the antigen or the allergen that was used was actually a standard uh, antigen called OVA which is used across a lot of different models to induce inflammation. The study actually showed beautifully that with this protocol, how do, how do you say it? Like Mesmero, you know, confuse the mice's immune system so they were no longer allergic to the OVA. So that's from the Journal of Clinical Investigation. And as long as a bunch of people were, shall we say, goofing around with T-cells, another group of scientists completely across the world may have found something even more fascinating. What could it be? Tune in at the end of this sentence to find out it's alopecia and balding. <laughs> yeah, going all the way from fighting allergies to the scourge of old rich men everywhere. <laughs> the so researchers at UC San Francisco have discovered that many forms of baldness, specifically those in the alopecia family, could be due again to T cells or these T regulator cells. Now, in addition to being memory cells, they also help to regulate inflammation. <laughs> Mount up. It was a clear black night, yeah. a clear white moon. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Do we have the licensing for this? Someone get us the licensing <laughs> for... Uh, what, what was the... the doesn't what he doesn't matter. It, you didn't uh, hear it. But... This, so in addition to controlling inflammation, a lot of these T regulator cells apparently can also trigger stem cells in the skin to promote growth of new hair follicles. So if the T cells are faulty, then you go bald. They actually go in and there's, there's inflammation that's right there at your hair follicle. And the inflammation it just ultimately causes the hair follicle to go completely senescent and stop making hair. 
Of course, this was also done not on men, because what man is going to subject himself to this kind of study? We'd like to cause balding. How's that sound? But they did it to mice, and they shaved the hair off these mice, and it didn't grow back. So there's tiny little mice with bald patches all over themselves, which I can't decide if it's sad or adorable. The study was published May 26th in Cell Magazine by UCSF, and basically a Dr. Michael Rosenblum, MVPHD, discovered that these T regulators have a very close relationship with stem cells in the hair follicles, and basically there's usually three or four clustering around the follicle itself. So if you remove that T reg from the skin or you block its ability to regenerate, then well, you get baldness. So this doesn't really help anybody being able to cause baldness yet. Yeah, unless you want to induce baldness. Which is, at the <laughs> best, a lazy Harry Potter spell. Yeah. <laughs> so lazy. I don't know. Voldemort seemed to like it. You know, he was Maybe that's why he was so mad. Right? Like, he just got pranked. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Isn't that what happened to Lex uh, Luthor too in the original Superman comics? Like he that's true. he lost his yeah, hair and yeah, then just yeah. got really mad and got really really pissed. Yeah, and you know that's I, which I think is one of the most awesome like supervillain origin stories of all time. I'm bald. I will destroy the <laughs> I'll world. I'll make them all pay. <laughs> but. I, I I actually do really love this study because and, and the reason it appeared in Cell, which is one of the most preeminent journals in you know biological research, is uh, this really translates to uh, examining how T regulatory cells affect stem cells. The fact that they used a hair follicle type of model, uh, it has kind of cool immediate implications for things like baldness. But this is something that could have long-reaching implications for all kinds of stem cell work. So if you're talking about regenerating stem cells for like Parkinson's patients to treat, you know, cells that have been destroyed in the basal ganglia in the brain, um, all the way to, you know, healing wounds with stem cells or um, regenerating bone marrow after leukemia, then, um, you know, this uh, work examining the relationship between T cells and uh, stem cells, in, albeit this way in the follicles, is really, really important for the field. You heard it here first. The hot new trend for this year's research in 2017 is T cells. I pity the fool who doesn't study T cells. <laughs> All over the place. So, if you're working in T cells, you have a That brings us to our next one. So, so far, that's not too bad. We're looking at potential improvements in in autism, in baldness, and allergies, all, you know, within the next 10 to 15 years. Improvements, not cures. Please take a note. However, yep. moving on to the next one, the biggest fears people have of growing old, uh, you know, certainly losing their mind and personality and going bald, but also loss of vision can be very, very limiting for people. Yeah, and it's especially scary and kind of heartbreaking when that loss of vision is from nothing that you did to hurt yourself. You know, it's kind of out of the blue, like macular degeneration. Yeah, so wet AMD or wet age-related macular degeneration is one of the leading causes of blindness in the U.S. And now 
a small and preliminary clinical trial published in May 19th of 2017 may have found that injecting a common cold-like virus into the eyes of age-related sufferers can halt and even reverse the progression of the disease. I did just say injecting into the eyeball, so you know people are not exactly lining up around the block for this one. But, Santosh, why don't you tell us about what the researchers over at John Hopkins in Maryland have discovered. We'll start with macular degeneration. So it's a really complex disease, um, but the subgroup that they're looking at right here is when the blood vessels in the back of the eye in the retina actually grow out of control. And that's called neovascular macular degeneration. And you don't want a bunch of blood vessels crisscrossing the retina because then the light-sensitive rods and cones can't pick up light and interpret it properly. So what they found was that they could block the proliferation of these vessels by blocking the growth factor called VEGF vascular endothelial growth factor, which is the growth factor that kind of encourages these blood vessels to grow. So what they did is, and this is going to sound scary on multiple fronts, so I'm going to walk you through it. Take a deep breath. Number one, they used a VEGF neutralizing protein called SFLT01. They hooked... (laughs) All right, stop it. (laughs) So they hooked up <laughs> they hooked up that protein to a virus, okay? Um, and this is called adeno-associated virus to AAV2 vector. That protein or the gene for that protein could actually get into the cells, into the retina, and start expressing the, the VEGF neutralizing protein by itself. Then you have to take it, and the delivery of this adeno-associated virus with the SFLT01 hooked up to it, is to inject it into the vitreous humor of the eye. All right, and it's with a teeny tiny needle. It's done with minimal harm by highly, highly trained ophthalmologists. And the goal is for that gene to get into the retina, for the protein to start expressing, and for VEGF, the, the vascular endothelial growth factor, to then get suppressed so that these blood vessels stop growing out of control. Just one teeny tiny little shot in the eye. However, before <laughs> before you start running in horror from that, please keep in mind that the current treatments for age-related macular degeneration involve getting injections into the eye once every four weeks. And if you want to maintain the benefits, you have to keep those up for the rest of your life. Uh, side effects of current right. medications also include, I believe, a heightened risk of stroke. You know, when you turn down vascular endothelial growth factor, this is a uh, little protein which also helps you grow new blood vessels. For instance, if you get tiny, tiny blockages uh, in places like your brain or your heart, your body is sending out signals all the time to make new blood vessels in order to supply that area with blood when the main blood vessel gets shut down in the case of a stroke. So you're, you're basically taking away the body's ability to recover from you know, blood clots. Now, this study did not show quite the dramatic response that you may be hoping. The 19 participants who took part of 
most of them really had nothing. No effects were observed in the group and no real improvements. Of the remaining 11 who did have some effect, four showed dramatic improvements after a single injection, two more experienced a partial improvement, and five had no response, but that's because they naturally produced antibodies that attack the AAV2 virus, because again, it is so common that you see in multiple upper respiratory infections and colds. This is one of those that um, if anybody's ever gotten, this isn't the virus itself that causes like pink eye or sore throat or, or even just the common cold, but it can cause some of those types of syndromes. So if the person had encountered AAV2 before, then their immune memory, remember from two episodes ago, it would ramp up a response and destroy the vehicle that was trying to deliver their cure. Which brings us to one of the last stories for this week's Journal Club, and also one of my favorites. It's poop! God damn it, it's poop! No, but we're, it's... We're gonna, but, but it's color-changing <laughs> poop. Oh, it's color-changing poop. Which we've covered the, <laughs> Franken, the Frankenstool scare and the Oreo peeps pooptastrophe. Uh, we've covered... A number of things that could change the color, consistency, and texture of your stool. But soon, this study talks about a reason you may want that to happen. It could, in fact, soon reveal why you're feeling a little bit, shall we say, off color? No? Not even a little? I'm I'm not going to... I'm not going to talk much during this... So I know you love talking about the microbiome, Santosh, and the microbiome is, of course, course the collection of bacteria unique to each individual that sort of make up their environment in their stomach. You're not just you. You're you plus a bunch of E. coli and all these other small bacteria that have this symbiotic relationship with you. Now, if we can find a way to have those bacteria help us diagnose things, such as in mice, who have really been taking one for the team this episode. Just every study (laughs) has had mouse models. So, thanks, Mickey. You know, and for for anyone out there who's on the fence, I'm I'm going to deliver a little bit of a, a split decision. Yes, it is heartbreaking and difficult to, you know, work with these mice who a lot of the time have to sacrifice themselves to teach us stuff. But I I will tell you, the knowledge that's coming out of mouse models is just absolutely invaluable. And (laughs) I I want you... Why are you hurting me so much? (laughs) (laughs) I want you to know that we, uh, those of us who do work with mice, and I'm one of those uh, researchers... We have nothing but the greatest respect for our uh, fellow animals who give their lives so that we can learn. Do you name them? I oh, uh, I don't. I don't because then I get attached, and then I genuinely cry when I have to euthanize them. And it's no, I do not name them. Absolutely not. Look away, old yeller. <laughs> Look at the flowers. So, can we move on with the article? (laughs) Okay, so normally in the past, in order to diagnose any kind of bowel-related condition, like diverticulosis or uh, many sources of bleeds or colon cancer 
or inflammatory bowel disease, you would have to put a camera on a thin flexible tube and shove it up the rectum. And according to Pamela Silver of the Harvard Medical School, people uh, often don't like that. So. That was almost Obama-esque. <laughs> <laughs> uh, people don't uh, they, they like do it. not enjoy having a tube shoved up there behind. Josh is talking about that in the past tense, but I, I, I would say this is very much in the present tense. Endoscopy is a standard for uh, diagnosing inflammation in the gut right now. And preparing for the procedure also usually requires fasting and taking strong laxatives, another winning combination. Mm. So an alternative that could be to measure chemicals in the gut linked to disease states. So how do we do that? By using color-changing bacteria. Now, this was first tested in Cambridge in 2009, but it's been really hard to develop any bacteria that survive in the gut long enough to be useful to change the color of something. The gut is a pretty harsh environment. So the bacteria would have to survive long enough to sense the chemical that it needed to sense, make it all the way down, you know, the some, you know, centimeters and centimeters of, of uh, bowel. Then it would have to, the population that, were, that could color change would have to not mutate. And that's actually, you know, quite a tall order to ask and then by the time it got all the way to the stool it would have to maintain its color changing property and the contact with the signaling molecule whatever it is that made it change color well good so news you're asking for a lot of- yeah <laughs> good news everyone <laughs> it comes as a suppository. So. <laughs> yes, again. You remember um, that? Yeah. yeah. So Pamela Silver and her colleagues have used a strain of E. coli bacteria, which is a very common bacteria found in our guts, which are sensitive to a chemical known as tetrathionate, seen in much higher levels in people who have inflammatory bowel disease, such as ulcerative colitis. So... The bacteria will come across this chemical, switch on a gene to make an enzyme, and this enzyme is passed in feces along with the bacteria. About a week later, they can be stained to change in color from white to bright blue. Now, this was, once again, as I said, done on mice. We are not at human trials yet because the bacteria have to be isolated from the feces you know, separated out and grown in the lab for a day to a week before any blue colonies can be observed. However, the fact that you can diagnose anything by looking at your, well, I believe it was covered in scrubs where everything comes down to poo from the top of your head to the sole of your shoe. We can figure out what's wrong with you by looking at your poo. Santo? Oh, we could. Yeah. So. My arm is broken. <laughs> Check the poo. I got shot. <laughs> Check the poo. <laughs> Uh, Go check the I musical. Love, that was actually yeah. the last. Go time. check the musical yeah. episode of Scrubs. It is absolutely fantastic. Zach Braff works wonders, yeah. as does that entire team. But this study came from oh. Nature and Biotechnology from May thirtieth of this year, and I'm really excited about the idea of. You know, a whole Lucky Charms toilet bowl diagnosing multiple diseases <laughs> at some point in the future. Yeah. Now, 
And and this was really, uh, and let me just reiterate. So the breakthrough here was that they were able to have a stable colony of E. coli that could go all the way from the mouth all the way down to the poo and maintain their color changing ability in response to inflammatory particles. So we're, we're still, at, you know, at preliminary stages, but it's a great little advance. Now, the one last thing I want to mention is this is so fascinating that there's even an art project based on it called E-Chromi, a collaboration <laughs> between designers and scientists, which has a suitcase <laughs> full of six different colored poos known as the scatalog and it will be in the show notes because this is truly a work of art that needs to be seen to be believed (laughs) Uh, Uh, oh and you know what let's go ahead and just make that the just the tip because it is on display in it is part of the permanent collection of the Museo del Ciencia in Trento. It is also visited and is traveling among the Museum of Contemporary <laughs> Art in Tokyo, the Science Gallery in Dublin, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and the Design Museum in London, among a couple others. So if you have ever wanted to walk into a high-class establishment to look at colorful, glittery fecal matter, well, you are in luck. <laughs> it's under glass. And it's safe. It's uh, you're not going to catch hepatitis from this. So uh, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's a good one. So that brings to a conclusion our journal club on self improvement. Think of all the wonderful things that you have coming up in your future, and don't try and tell me there's no hope for the human race. <laughs> there's all kinds of hope, and the hope starts with mice (laughs) and ends with colored poop as always we love to hear your comments questions and feedback you can reach us on facebook on squarespace on twitter on patreon anywhere podcasts are downloaded we'd love to hear your reviews your ratings and we would love for you to support us spiritually emotionally and financially Included in the show notes are a whole bunch of places you can do that. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me (laughs) with the help, with a lot of help from all my co-hosts and those of you who submit stories. Thank you very much. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys.